0: Hello, I'm back, this is Father John Arnold, and this is Oro Valley Catholic. If you've been paying attention to the press over the last month or so, uh, then you've probably heard about all the controversies about the Latin Mass and the bishops, the Eucharist and Catholic politicians. It's all rooted really in John chapter six and what Jesus did the night of the Last Supper And if you recall, it's the Last Supper that makes Jesus' death on the crucifix a sacrifice. And if it is a sacrifice, Jesus himself tells us that the bread that he breaks at the Last Supper, the cup of wine that he shares, is a participation in his body and blood, he says, This is my body, this is my blood, and that's why we Catholics believe that Jesus is truly and really present in the Eucharist, body, blood, soul, and divinity, and that when we come to Eucharist, it is, as the Second Vatican Council instructs us, the source and the summit of faith. And so The Eucharist very much is at the heart of our Catholic faith. It's also been at the heart of uh, some of our arguments as Catholics, especially in the United States of America. But you know, there's a lot of dimensions to the Eucharist. uh, And one aspect of our communal life gathered around the altar is the social aspect of it because Catholics are a community The church is like Jesus gathering everybody in a grassy field because he's going to multiply loaves and fishes and feed them there in the wilderness, just like God through Moses uh, fed the people of Israel. And if you remember, he has the disciples, he uses them to organize the people into all of these groups just like the bishops are used to organize the church into dioceses and parishes. At the heart of all of this social aspect um, is the sense of belonging and not belonging. And that's why for some of our uh, parishioners, our Catholics, we all know, that uh, to be excluded from the Eucharist is a tremendously traumatizing uh, experience religious experience. The idea is why go to Mass if I can't go to the Eucharist? And so the Eucharist has been at the heart of uh, the struggles of the Church. Um, I did a course with Dr. Steve Bullivant at the University of St. Mary's in London, and he had done a study on reasons why people live, leave the Catholic Church, and not unsurprisingly, um it's divorce and remarriage and uh the sense that people can't come to the eucharist this is why we have confessionals why we have the tribunal to try to reconcile people after they've had these traumatic uh, events in their life and help them uh, continue to walk with the lord and maybe come back to the table of eucharist remember it's not divorce that keeps you away from the eucharist it's divorce followed by remarriage outside the church. And that's why as a canon lawyer, I see my work as work of reconciliation. Um, But Catholics have to trust the church enough to at least come and talk about it. But you know, what also is involved in it is the lack of Catholic faith in the Eucharist. The idea that the Eucharist isn't really the body and blood of the Lord, it is merely the social. Jesus' statement at the Last Supper about this being his body and his blood is uh, relativized. It's really part of the deeper diseases in Western culture. And that disease is this separation between the materialistic and the supernatural. For those who see the world merely as matter, well, wow, is that a grim view of reality? And it doesn't really account... For a human being's holistic understanding of their life, that you simply boil down to electrical impulses, chemical interactions, uh biology, and physics. Uh this does not explain why people fall in love, why they get married, and why they feel so traumatized in divorce or Why it is they're searching for always something solid to uh, to base their life on. So for some people who become materialist atheists, um, they think that is the firm ground under their feet. I say it's quicksand because it can never explain the longings in their heart. But that there's something more about nature, we call it the supernatural, that the natural world, the material world, participates in this world of God that is not a material world. You know, science is limited to the material. So in principle, science can ne- neither prove nor disprove the supernatural by the same token. Uh, Christians can't really use science to prove or disprove the, the prove the supernatural. Uh, The best that uh, we get as Christians in science is whether or not the Big Bang or evolution, how they give us a bigger understanding, a consistent understanding of what our faith tells us about being children of God, coming from God. You know, our sense of consciousness. You know, Galileo got in trouble Um, back during the time of the Reformation, that would be the 16th century. Not because of the science per se, because Copernicus 70 years previously had the same thing, had said the same thing without a burp in the middle of the 15th century. What was the difference? Galileo was doing it at the time of the 30 years war. Uh, Copernicus was doing it in the relative calm of the 15th century. And so Galileo is talking about the book of Joshua and saying that when the book of Joshua, it says that God stopped the sun in the sky so Joshua and his army had more opportunity, a longer day to kill their enemies at I spelled A-I. Galileo's uh, kind of smart-alecky point was uh, you know, God wouldn't have stopped the sun in the sky. He would have stopped the Earth from revolving around uh, revolving around the sun and 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 turning while it while it uh, follows its course around the sun. Well, that ticked off the Jesuits, although we had Jesuit Jesuit <laughs> Jesuit defenders also. I think it's one of the great ironies of our time that the Jesuits are actually responsible for the Vatican Observatory up on Mount Hopkins. But Galileo was subject to uh, to uh, house arrest because he had tried to take science to make scriptural points when the world was in complete upheaval. Ay ay ay. So it has ever been. Six semper transit mundi. Thus always goes the world. And so we're going to talk about today's gospel, the context, why it matters. Because when we talk about the, the, the Eucharist, we are talking about a miracle. God does do miracles in the world, and one of them is every day at St. Mark's when we celebrate the Eucharist in the context of Mass. So let's turn to the Gospel of John. Well, you probably know that this year is the year when we read the Gospel of Mark. Uh, However, since the Gospel of Mark is the shortest gospel in our liturgy, we pump it up by adding about five Sundays that come out of John chapter 6. And we take the part in, in John, the Gospel of John in the sixth chapter, that really tracks the story of Jesus where we're at, where we left off in the Gospel of Mark, and that is with Jesus multiplying the loaves and the fishes, which we all know the story, and Jesus walking on water, which we all know the story. But importantly, as the church kind of breaks up the Gospel of John into chapters, the church starts chapter 6 with the story of the multiplication of loaves and fishes. That is a supernatural event. It recalls God's feeding the Israelites in the desert. And in fact, that's why our first reading is from the book of Exodus, because we're linking this multiplication of the loaves and fishes, the church is, with the story of Moses. So we're going to take a little time and talk about how this fills out what Jesus is saying about his uh, his, uh, flesh and his blood made for the life of the world. But just like in the Gospel of Mark, after Jesus uh, multiplies the loaves and the fishes, he wants to withdraw. And he sends the uh, apostles in a boat uh, across uh, the Sea of Galilee to go across the sea. But Jesus is not with them in the boat. But remember the story. This is the story, and it's in Mark and the other Gospels, where Jesus says goodbye, so Jesus is where they were. They are in transit across the, the sea, and you know they're going to run into a big storm, and they're going to be afraid because he's not with them. That's when Jesus passes by walking on the water. And he says, do not be afraid. In the English translation, he says, it is I. But the original Greek has ego eimi. And that same phrase, ego eimi, is translated in other parts of John as I am, which is what the burning bush says to Moses in the desert. So this is clearly pointing towards Exodus. Why we choose to say it is I, I think it just makes more sense grammatically in English. But the problem is, is if you can't read the gospel in the original Koine Greek, you lose the multiple layers that the Greek language brings to the story of the walking of walking on the water. because God's self-designation is I am. That is the one who is existence itself, his, his modus operandi, his actual being is simply to be exist, to exist. He holds all things in existence. And then of course, they get to the other side, who's waiting for him. Jesus and this is how the story starts out today because the crowds notice that Jesus didn't get in the boat Jesus wasn't in the boat when uh, the disciples arrived but well here he is anyway did he have a another boat did he take an airplane uh, what happened and they don't pay attention to that part of this story and What it says, it's Mark's way of saying is that the multiplication of the loaves and the fishes and this supernatural revelation of who Jesus is to his disciples who believe in a way the crowd does not believe that this whole discourse about bread from heaven will be received in a disordered way. And that's why the rest of John chapter 6 is Jesus explaining and his interlocutors, the people asking questions, are neither understanding nor believing, and some of them end up walking away. Because at the heart of John chapter six is to get what the Eucharist is, you have to understand that Jesus is, I am. And that Jesus is the one that through whom the people were fed in the desert and through whom Catholics are fed. And so with that context, Think about how this discourse goes just in this part of John chapter 6. We'll talk about the rest of it in the coming weeks. So they come and they, they talk about the bread from heaven, and Jesus says about the multiplication of the loaves and fishes, because they've all been fed. They were all there. They all saw it. They don't understand it. It's like trying to read the scripture with less than a Catholic faith. You never take out of the scriptures what is really the wealth the pearl of great price that is there so what's jesus say say to him you're not here because you you understood the miracle of the loaves and fishes i'm paraphrasing a little bit you're here so i can feed your belly you know what this is it's the experience of people who think of faith as a way that they get something out of god Faith is, God, what are you doing for me right now? And that is, at some point, the entry level into a deeper relationship. Everybody wants God to uh, feed them, to God to take away suffering, to God to make our life easier. For heaven's sake, I in mean, me no less than anybody else. But that's not what faith is. Faith is accepting our true situation in life. And I would say this is where materialist atheists do some good for us, at least the smart ones, because they're not all smart. But the, the idea is, wow, existence can be grim. No matter if you meet the person of your dreams, you have a wonderful family and a great career, it's all gonna come crashing down because we are not in control of our own existence. And so the, cr- the crowd asks them, so well, what, what is this? What is the work of God? Because Jesus says you're supposed to do the work of God. And so they respond, What can we do to accomplish the works of God? And Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in the one he sent. See, faith is believing in Jesus, yes, but it's believing on what Jesus did. So when Jesus says, This is my body and this is my blood, It is the work of God to accept and believe. When Jesus sends his missionaries out, his apostles, uh, to to evangelize the world, the work of God is believing in Jesus's work in the church. It's why the church is a heavenly mystery present in time, that we see both the divine present in it, but also we see, since the very beginning, just the problems of humanity interacting with the divine. And you never get John chapter 6 unless you understand that this is the divine interacting with human beings. We are all, when it comes to God, slow boats. Um, But Jesus tries to, to steepen that learning curve and lead us ahead. And so the people said to Jesus, Moses gave us bread from heaven. What can you do for us? Can you give us this bread always? Well, remember the bread from heaven in Exodus, it wasn't for always. It was just there for the 40 years that the people went um, through the desert. It's in the book of De- Deuteronomy when they finally entered, at least this, uh, the people that did enter, because nobody who left Egypt apparently entered into um, into the, uh, the promised land except those two spies they sent in who came back and said, no, they're too big, we can't beat them. Those are the only two on record that were actually above twenty years old when they left when they left Egypt. But I'll I'll get to that when we talk about the Book of Numbers and how all these stories intersect. But do you remember the story from Exodus? And it's in that first reading. And a long reading, John chapter six, you know you go to the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops. The link is on our parish webpage. And you can read the text. But it said that what God gave the people do you remember he gave them manna, which was like dew from heaven? He says it looked like hoarfrost, which is a, a particular kind of frost that melts away. And he also gave them flesh in the evening, quails. So he gave them bread and he gave them flesh. Does this sound like anything you've heard of? That God gives us bread, God gives us flesh. What Jesus does, is says, this bread is my flesh for the life of the world. This is not a coincidence. The Old Testament, is how God prepares us to understand spiritual realities which transcend what was revealed to the people in the Hebrew scriptures. God's revelation is Jesus Christ. The Greek scriptures are the continuation of the revelation that God has given to the Jewish people. It's why the Jewish people and the Christian people are connected and that, we listen to the church, we're all Counting on God that brings us all through. But the Eucharist is the bread from heaven. And that's why Jesus concludes the reading and says, I am the true bread from heaven. And then he'll later say, and we'll get to this in the next couple of weeks, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. Because Jesus is taking us through something more than just the desert to another place, modern Israel, where modern Israel is. He's taking on an exodus from this life to the next. That's the big jump. And that's why we need God's grace. It's why materialism alone cannot satisfy the human heart, that we are made for something else. C.S. Lewis would say is, is, you know, if you have desires that in this life can simply not be met, no matter how great your life is, if you have Is this all anywhere in your wheelhouse? That should be some evidence to you that you are actually made to be fulfilled in another place, the kingdom of heaven. So let's take a moment and pull all of this about the Eucharist and the Exodus uh, together with our current situation as a pilgrim people. And now let's turn uh, to the Latin Mass and um, The Eucharist and politicians. Eucharist and communion is at the heart of so much which has kind of embroiled American Catholicism in the last month and a half or so. Uh, To be in full communion is to believe as a Catholic, to live a moral life like a Catholic, to engage in the sacraments as a Catholic, to pray as a Catholic, and come to Eucharist according to canon law at least once a year. And so if you look at the two things that have happened, both from Rome and in the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, they both impact one way or another in the sense of full communion, uh, and how it is that the Eucharist ought to be lived in, uh, in the parish, in parish life. So obviously, the most recent thing that has annoyed some people, maybe a too not strong enough a word in, in America, but it's Pope Francis motu proprio traditionis custodes. Motu proprio means it's it's done on his own recognizance. Although he did do a survey of uh, uh, with about eight questions on it of uh, bishops around the world, and then uh, was motivated to act based on the survey, but. Uh, you know, it it doesn't get rid of the uh, Roman Missal the, from St. John the Twenty Third, the 1962 Roman Missal. It just gives control locally to the bishop. And so, in terms of who's practicing uh, or celebrating the Trinitine rite in the diocese of Tucson, probably it's inconsequential. There will, there will be no effect at all. But apparently, in other dioceses. Uh, some Latin Mass groups are a little more concerned. If you read the um, the Traditiones Custodes, a copy of which is on the uh, this podcast page on our parish website, you can read, it's a very short page and a half. Um, but it says is that the purpose of the moda proprio is um, to promote and protect Ecclesial Communion. And then in Article 2 it says, it belongs to the diocesan bishop as moderator, promoter, and guardian of the whole liturgical life of the particular church entrusted to him to regulate the liturgical celebrations in the diocese. And what it basically says is is that if you're currently saying the Latin Mass, you have to reach out to him uh, for permission. If you're in the seminary and you want to celebrate the Latin Mass when you get out, you've got to ask his permission, and then in turn it needs to be Uh, approved in Rome Um, no new Latin mass groups are permitted to be uh, formed without the approval of Rome Um, that's the the guts of the whole document the the sense of the whole thing and for whatever reason people are very upset that the diocesan bishop now has a role in deciding uh, what the liturgical celebrations are at least in Latin uh, in his diocese I think it's Odd uh, that the Pope would have allowed me to celebrate the Latin Mass. I've had one semester of Latin, um, and I, I don't know how I would have done it reverently. Uh, and but apparently uh, there are guys around the country that have sought training someplace. But it just reaffirms the role of the bishop in his diocese as the moderator and promoter and guardian of the liturgy. And I just I have trouble understanding why Catholics would be upset by that. The second part is a little more. Um, serious in in my estimation and that's about this document on the Eucharist that's been discussed by the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops Bishop Kevin Rhodes of South Bend who is the head of the committee that is drafting that says it will not be aimed at Catholic politicians but there will be due attention given uh, to worthiness for communion Uh, right now people are supposed to kind of uh, decide and look at their hearts and say am I coming to the Eucharist in an unworthy way. I think the concern of American Catholics is that, um, and it's become because of uh, President Biden's election, that uh, there are Catholic politicians who, you just can't understand how a Catholic could come to their position on abortion, but they seem to not have any particular problem with it. But the question of whether it promotes scandal uh, to allow um, uh, these Catholic politicians to come uh, to Communion. Obviously, this is not a new issue in Catholicism that's been going on for decades. Um, but this is the first serious attempt, I, that I recall at least, uh, to try and, and come up with some unified response, according to at least uh, some some bishops. Bishop Cordiglione of San Francisco, Bishop Strickland of Tyler, Texas, being two of the prominent voices. And I think Archbishop Nauman, uh, Archbishop Cordelone, pardon me, is an archbishop, Archbishop Nauman, um, that they would like to see every bishop in the country just refuse them um, communion. Obviously, that's been very controversial amongst the bishops and amongst Catholics. And it, regardless of whatever other argument it is, is we have a long history of this. And remember, one of the things that lit up the Reformation um, is uh, the, the ability to excommunicate or deny communion. Although then it was a pretty much excommunication from, from the church, not simply denying communion, which is what the issue is in this document. But still the idea of using communion uh, for what will no doubt be understood by some people in the countries for political purposes, even though I think Bishop Wall of Gallup has gone out of his way to say this is pastoral, it's not political, still, um, boy if you can't get why people won't see this as weaponizing the eucharist you're not alert to what's happening what is in american culture especially amongst the predominantly protestant culture that um, at least their ancestors in faith to part of the church because of the church's weaponization of eucharist the political reformation there's a a religious and a political reformation the political reformation as all of these princes and kings, notably Henry VIII, but there were many others, who saw the the religious reformation as a chance to get away from the Pope. Because if the Pope could excommunicate you, it meant nobody in your kingdom had to listen to you, pay taxes, or do anything else. It basically cut you off at the knees. He did that, to, I think it was... Uh, the Holy Roman Emperor Frederick Barbarossa, I think, was briefly excommunicated, then famously reconciled to the Church at Canossa, um, the castle of Saint Margaret of, Margaret of Tuscany. She is one of the few saint, one of the people who's not been proclaimed a saint who has a statue at Saint Peter's, which I think is interesting, because she was such a powerful uh, female ruler in the Italian Peninsula. But these are important issues, but it's about leadership, 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 and fidelity, fidelity, fidelity. So Catholics like to grumble, uh, and, but we all have to give the uh, opportunity to our bishops to do in their conscience what they think is best. You know, grumbling seems to me to um, pretty much sum up some parts of the church. And going back to the story from Exodus which is about uh, manna in the desert. Um, uh, We say in the first uh, Eucharistic prayer, number two, that the Holy Spirit will come down on these gifts like dew fall from heaven. Uh, Well, that's exactly how manna is described in the book of Exodus. But the book of Numbers talks about all the people who were fed the manna in the desert and ate the quail. Numbers chapter 14, verses 26 to 33. And uh, the bad news. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, How long will this wicked community grumble against me? I've heard the grumblings of the Israelites against me. Tell them by my life I will do to you just what I heard you say. This is the oracle of the Lord. Here in the wilderness, your dead bodies shall fall. Of all your men of 20 years or more enrolled in your registration, who grumbled against me, not one of you shall enter the land where I solemnly swore to settle you, except Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, son of Nun. Your little ones, however, who you said would be taken as spoil, I will bring in, and they shall know the land you rejected. But as for you your body shall fall here in the wilderness, while your children will wander for 40 years, suffering for your infidelity, till the last of you lies dead in the wilderness. Okay, so anyone 20 years or older who grumbled against God, they're dead in the wilderness, except for two guys, according to the book of Numbers. Grumbling is a sin that particularly ticks off God, according to the book of Numbers. So, intelligent discussion, faithful interlocution, to borrow that word, (laughs) trying to understand these are all good things. Grumbling, grumbling never does any good for anybody. So the last month and a half, let's just be thankful for the rain we got. Let's be thankful for the church that God has given us. Let's trust that wherever the bishops take us in this process, wherever the Pope is leading us, will be for the uh, promotion and strengthening of our ecclesial communion because the Eucharist is the body and blood, soul and divinity of Jesus risen from the dead. It's the man in the desert for us. So as we spend the next few weeks going through uh, the Gospel of John, what a great time to be thankful for the gifts of the Eucharist and the real presence of Christ in the midst of our community. Time to give praise, not a time to grumble. This has been Father John Arnold, and this has been one more edition of Old Valley Catholic. Uh, share it with your friends. Bye-bye.